Hello, 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 and welcome to the I Save That podcast. I'm Judy Thompson, the Director of Clinical Education at the Association for Vascular Access. It's been busy. We just wrapped up our annual scientific meeting for 2021. And like many other associations out there, we went the virtual route. Fingers crossed, we will be face-to-face in Minneapolis, Minnesota this time next year. If you missed it, there's still time to sign up and you have until November 15th to claim your CEs. I wanna thank Medtronic for sponsoring this episode. Medtronic welcomes the Ellipsis Vascular Access System to its AV portfolio. Learn more about new percutaneous solutions for AV fistula creation. Visit medtronic.com backslash ellipsis. So let's get to this podcast. I am so excited to be visiting and talking to my friend, Dr. Mike Cyril. Mike is a doctorally prepared PA out of North Carolina with a specialty and passion in renal disease and vascular access. I love talking to this guy. It feels like I'm talking to my brother from a different mother. Welcome, welcome to the Ava I Save That podcast. Thank you so much, Judy. Thank you for having me back. This is super exciting to uh, A, be back on the show with you, but also be able to talk about my favorite thing, my favorite medical thing in the world, which is dialysis and dialysis access. So so thank you so much for uh, allowing me to participate. Hello to all the, uh, all the listeners. There's so many things to talk to you about, but let's start with acute kidney injury, chronic kidney disease, and stage renal disease. I think there's some misconceptions or maybe some confusion on one versus the other and what to do. Can you help? So I think one, one of the things that it's important to do is, uh, so I think there's a lot of confusion when we start talking about CKD and end stage renal disease and, you know, versus, you know, acute renal failure. When do we start watching, you know, whether we should put picks and midlines in? Uh, when is this person, when should we consult nephrology? So I think there's a little bit of confusion in terms of actual definition because, you know, it's not uncommon to see a bump in creatinine or, or a decrease in GFR you know, as an acute process. So I think just for a little level setting for the audience, I think it's really good to kind of set some definitions and the definition of chronic renal failure uh, is basically the progressive loss of renal function over time. And it's based on a progressive gradual decline of GFR and creatinine clearance. Um, And in order to get the diagnosis of CKD, you need two factors and they both need to be present. And then number one is a declining kidney function for three months or more. In addition to evidence of kidney damage, such as albuminuria or an abnormal biopsy, or a GFR less than 60. So when you so, so, so that's kind of the definition. You have both criteria, declining in renal function over three months, in addition to some sort of evidence of damage to the kidney. And then, and then from there, you can kind of then further, further delineate it to stages one, two, three, four, and five. And stage one really is one of those um, stages that most of the time, if you, if you weren't looking for the patient, you, you wouldn't necessarily know the patient had kidney failure just based on lab work because their GFR is generally preserved. It's greater than 90 uh, milliliters per minute. Um, then obviously stage two, you start decreasing your GFR to uh, you know, 60 to 89. Stage three, that GFR drops from 30 to 59. Uh, stage four, 15 to 30. Stage five, less than 15. And once that patient becomes irreversible kidney damage and your GFR is less than 15, that's when you're, descri- that's when you're described as end-stage renal disease. I think that's important to make sure everybody understands that. And 
I'm going to go one step further back in case we have people that are just really not as well versed on kidney disease function. We talk about GFR, we see it all the time. And you, I'm actually surprised by how many, how few people actually understand what GFR really means. So I just want to make sure I threw that out there. So we're all speaking the same language and the GFR is obviously the glomerular filtration rate, but, and we all know what that means. Everyone in the audience knows that, but I think the glomerular filtration rate, it becomes really important once you start thinking about what the glomeruli are, which is the functional unit in the kidney. You know, remember for high school physiology, the Bowman's capsule and, you know, the Luca Henley and all that stuff. So I think if you just understand that basically it's loss of functional units of the kidney for whatever reason, whether it's hypertension, when you're damaging the end of the basement membranes from the high pressure, diabetes, because of those glycoproteins are being deposited into the basement membranes and you're destroying the, the glomeruli. It's all about the destruction of the glomeruli, nephrotoxic drugs. What, whatever the reason is, once you have irreversible destruction of those glomeruli, that's when we start to see renal failure and certainly chronic renal failure. So I thought it was important to at least make sure that we go over that for this discussion. I hope, I hope that was okay. That was awesome. So Mike, when in your experience and your knowledge, and obviously this is your specialty in, in renal, the renal arena, renal arena, let's say that five times fast. Talk to me about GFR versus creatinine and looking at those values as a function of kidney disease and leveling. Sure, sure. So both, you know, obviously both are useful indicators as to the patient's overall you know, kidney status, but a lot of it, you, you, you've got to remember that um, you, you, there, there are times where you're going to see a patient with a normal creatinine, you know, relatively, relatively normal creatinine, 1.1, 1 1.2 1 uh, with a GFR less than 30, because creatinine is a function of muscle mass. So if a patient, if you've got an 86 pound little old lady who has no muscle mass, it's very possible that you can see a significant decrease in renal function, the GFR, the glomerular filtration rate, uh, and have a relatively preserved creatinine. You can see that because they have, they, they have very little muscle mass. So I generally use a trend in uh, GFR, and, and I think most, nephrology, most of the nephrology community uses a trend in the glomerular filtration rate to give us a better indication as to where that patient's renal status is. And again, remember, so this is a trend over three months, if that's available to you. And if you're unsure of the patient's trends, because, you know, sure, you can get a, you can get a, you know, a, an acute drop in, in GFR or an acute spike in creatinine for whatever reasons, patients dehydrated or the patient, you know, has acute kidney injury from, you know, a transient acute kidney injury from, you know, you name it. Those are the times where you may want to get nephrology involved before throwing a pick line in that patient or a midline in that patient because it's the convenient thing to do for that patient. Because if that patient does progress to stage five, yes, you know, stage five ESRD, where they're going to require long-term dialysis access, uh, and I've had this discussion many, many times, you've done more harm for that patient than you would have if you just had somebody come evaluate that patient. You know, unfortunately, sometimes you go down the road and, and, and you know, it's, it's still equivocal. You got to get a key. Sometimes you need a kidney biopsy and yeah, and then there's inherent risk in that, of course, but let the nephrology community, those that specialize in what you do in, in, in this, make that decision. Because if this, if this patient is being worked up as a, you know, as an inpatient, there are alternative accesses to ones that are going to, that are going to destroy central uh, upper extremity vasculature. Give that patient the best shot, especially if you're dealing with a 60 year old, 50 year old, 70 year old, that's relatively functional outside that can potentially live many, many more years with an adequate, you know, potential dialysis access if it 
good if it progresses to that level. So I think all of us are guilty of trying to do the quickest thing and the easiest thing for the, you know, we, we, we justify it by doing what's best for the patient in that particular time, but we all practice in almost a silo. And that's when you're dealing with the end stage renal population, you just can't do that. You have to understand there are so many downstream sequelae to every decision you make. And I've had, you talk about ages. I had a, I've told this story a couple of times. I had a patient was in his early thirties and fragile diabetic, you know, he'd locked, he was a type one diabetic from childhood and uncontrolled hypertension and diabetes. And his, he was in stage three when I first saw him, he needed, needed antibiotics for six weeks and they ordered a pick. And I looked at his trends and you're ma making me feel smarter than I am. Cause way back in the day before it was a cool thing to do, I followed twin trends of GFR and uh, now there's no way that this guy he's everything for me points to he is going to live to need dialysis he's 33 years especially old. that age especially that age right. absolutely yeah so i i fought i said no we we can't put a line in this guy and we went back and forth and back and forth and nephrology okayed it and you know me being a little bit of a rebel i went a little bit further and i called vascular surgery I said, you know, the, this guy, what do you think? And he goes, eh, he's stage three, he's 35, he's fine. Long story short, that was before I, I had the ability to place everything. So I placed a line or a pick. And fast forward five years, same guy comes back in, stage five, needed dialysis, needed a fistula, or that was their choice. They made mapped him and the vasculature on the side I put the line in would, would not work for dialysis mm -hmm. because it wouldn't mature. And um, the vascular surgeon actually came up to me. It was really kind of a nice moment because, because I wrote a note about it because you're right. My God, I, it's hard to believe that five years later that this is an issue from the pick you placed. And, he, and here's, and that's a really good point, Judy, because here's the thing with that. Our vascular community is, they're experts in vascular disease, but they don't always follow. You gotta remember a very busy vascular surgeon doesn't always specialize in vascular access care. When I say vascular access care, I'm talking about ESRD, vascular access care. I've had vascular surgeons say to me that, you know, the patient has a fistula on the right. You go ahead and put a pick on the line on the left and you've got a palm to the head moment. And like, but it's, it's you know, unfortunately it's a lot of times it's a lack of forethought and it's a lack of, it's just, it's just a lack of planning. And if you don't solve all that patient routinely, it's no one's at fault. None of us are entering to do this in, in a nefarious way. You know, no one, no one's setting out to hurt the patient. It's just a matter of, sometimes it's a matter of, we don't know what we don't know. And sometimes it's a matter of, uh, it'll probably be okay. We also, that commercial, it'll probably, it's kind of a funny commercial, <laughs> but, uh, but uh, you, you know, at the end of the day, uh, you, you know, everything's a specialty in vascular access. We've said this last time, vascular access is a specialty um, and it's a special, it's a, and, and, you know, I'll argue that those that specialize in the dialysis care, it's, it's a subspecialty of the specialty of vascular access. So you have to have a decent knowledge base of this and understand the downstream sequelae. Uh, otherwise, you're putting people at harm. So I found as well as, especially in early stages, stage three is a difficult spot because there's so many variables. You think this guy's 90, he's that's a whole different thought process than my 30 year old that's been Agreed. a diabetic since birth. But the nephrologies too, he's got a patient that has XYZ stage three, and he knows he has osteo. You don't give him the antibiotic. It's going to progress. He's going to get sicker and he's likely going to die. He's not, 
often or sometimes um, thinking five, 10, 20 years down the road. And sure. I think, you know, expedience. Yeah. We have a team right here. They'll place your line right now, but uh, there's so many factors to it. It's if it were simple, it would be fixed. So yeah, there, there's so many factors when it comes to this renal population. And I think it, it part of that, the reason is that's why it intrigues me so much because you can't, it's not your normal Joe. It's not your 45 year old that fell down that needs, you know, seven days of ANSEF. Absolutely. I say this over and over and over again. I mean, these patients and anyone that listens to this, these patients, I'm going to say this again and again and again, these patients are so vulnerable. They are so vulnerable. Take it from somebody who's, who did uh, vascular access, dialysis access, dialysis tech. I did IR for almost 12 years, put in more pick lines than I can ever imagine, but also did a lot more venograms than most people because the nature of IR. And you, you, even though you're not seeing the acute issues with these, uh, these devices, because most of the time they go unnoticed, these devices, they, they serve an amazing purpose, but they, they damage veins. I mean, there's, it's been shown over and over again. They, they damage veins. And when you, when, when you put them in patients that, that need those veins, and most of the time it's, 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 it's inconsequential for the average patient, but the patients that really need it really, you know, we, we hurt them. We hurt them badly. And it's a, it's a problem. So. We do. And these guys fall in the same boat with our sickle cell and folks, oh, our yeah. CFF folks that we've been placing lines since they're infants and they get into their twenties and they're totally vessel depleted top down. I, always, I do. And, and, and that's the part that actually to you, that, that interests me a lot because I, you know, you just see, you see pick lines done a lot of times in the neonatal ICUs and for our neonatal uh, you know, specialists out there. I, I wonder, because I, I don't have any data on this, uh, what that, how that translates. And I'm not sure, I'm not sure if the data is going to be even out there right now, because we haven't been putting pick lines in 20 years on uh, in neonatal patients, to my knowledge. So I wonder what's going to happen, you know, down the road on those patients that were in the ICU in the NICU for all these years. And, you know, they grow up and they end up having, you know, long-term issues. Do they have vessel issues later on? I, I just, I don't know the answer to that. I don't know. If oh, they do. I'm sure, I'm, sure, I'm sure they do. I mean, it, it doesn't make sense that they don't. <laughs> if you look at one of the most common diagnoses for PICs in the neonate is short gut. Yeah. Because they don't, they have to be on TPN to live. And those folks, their, their vasculature is often gone in their thirties. I know someone specifically right now is dealing with exactly that wonderful woman. And she's to the point where there's very few people that specialize to that level, like a Gail Egan. And when you get to the point where you have very few vessels left and you're talking about doing trans lumbar or having mm -hmm. to do kind of the crazier stuff, those folks need a, a center, a center where we can get these people to Absolutely. that have the best of the best that play with all the, the super cool wires that absolutely, absolutely. think outside that box and actually get them life-saving devices. We did, um, so we were really, 
did a lot of dialysis work, but you know, when I dealt with central venous access occlusion patients, a lot of times you can just, you could cross it with a traditional stiff angle glide wire, but if I couldn't get across from that, I sent to your point, I sent it to a specialty center. I'm in North Carolina. So I generally would send it to, uh, to, to UNC or Duke, but um, UNC often, and um, they get them in and, you know, they do, they, they would do a recanalization procedure. I, I've had situations where Patients were chronically accessed for long periods of time with dialysis catheters. I know I could think of one patient off the top of my head who is a, uh, because I'm so laser focused on vessel access preservation. He was in his forties. He was a, he was in prison and he was in prison for 20 years and he um, burned through all his access to the point where it went with, with dialysis catheters and he was, his uh, IVC was occluded and his upper extremities were occluded and bolt bilaterally. And so he had no access remaining for, 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 for a long-term access for, uh, you know, official or graph. So he had two options, which either, either continue to be chronic catheter dependent. I was able to snake a wire uh, at one point, I got lucky. He was able to get something through his left EJ uh, into his right atrium, oh, wow. and, that, and that stayed in for uh, you know a couple of years because he was in prison. So he didn't never came back to you know they never sent him for access, or he really didn't have any access opportunities at that point. So finally, he came back to me for a catheter exchange, and I said to him, I was "Like, why are you still have the same catheter I put in for two years, and how are you still alive?" Well, long story short. You know, we got him referred. I got him referred to UNC. Uh, they got a hero graft in him, which is basically they were able to do a central recanalization procedure on the right side, put a hero graft in, and great. But I refused to take out that catheter on his left. So what I did was I converted it to a subcutaneous port that was oh, never awesome. accessed just to preserve that access because I knew once that access was gone, because you weren't getting you you weren't getting back across it. So it's about faking down the road of what's going to happen to the patient. We pull catheters constantly and we do this and, and, and it's big, but you know, there's no guarantee once a catheter comes out, same thing with a pick line, same thing comes with, goes with a, you know, a midline There's no guarantee you're getting back in same reason why if you're going to put something in somebody, you really got to make sure that you understand the whole medical history. We don't prescribe medication without giving them a whole medical history, right? So if somebody comes into the emergency department with a glucose of 120, you're not going to put them on an insulin drip, you know? <laughs> so, so, you know, you know, to, to that point, why are we ordering, and this is probably taboo and, and this, is my, this is one man's opinion. Why are we ordering pick lines as the first line access out of the ER for patients that's getting admitted? So, you know, and, and, and I know that's controversial, but at the end of the day, could this patient get a peripheral IV if you spent a little bit more time or called somebody else in that need, they know what they're doing, whip out the ultrasound of the baby. But I know, and I know time is money, but at the end of the day, then you, you know, how many times have you seen a patient get a pick line from the emergency department? Right. And then all of a sudden labs are pending. They need IV access. They need fluids, whatever. And then re you realize that this patient is in, you know, is in chronic renal failure. And now you've put that pick line on that patient, but they need that pick line because they need access. So they keep that pick line in. And then all of a sudden that patient's kidney failure continues to decline. And now you've, and, and, and what's, what side do most people go after the pick line, right? So it's, uh, you know, most people try to put it on the right side. Uh, luckily, most people go for the non-dominant arm on the left side, but that doesn't work. You, you're destroying half the options there. And who's, who's to say the first side is going to work and, and mature uh, fistula? Absolutely. Absolutely. So lot, lot, lots of downstream issues there. And I, again, I know that I have um, a very different perspective than some people that do this, but I, all I ask is just keep your mind, you know, keep, keep focused on what else could be going on with the patient and what their long-term goal is. And to your earlier point, if you've got a 91 year old person who's really sick 
getting them access is the first priority. I agree with that 100%. Long-term access is not, you know, is likely irrelevant. But if you've got somebody that can potentially have years in front of them, uh, we all need as a healthcare community to focus on saving that vein, preserving the vein. So we need to do better. Agreed, agreed. Mike, we're going to take a quick minute and hear a word from our sponsor. Do you treat end-stage renal disease patients requiring hemodialysis? Transform your AV fistula creation with the Ellipsis Vascular Access System from Medtronic. The Ellipsis System's unique single catheter, non-surgical approach requires no implant or suture and simplifies a traditionally invasive surgical procedure. Guided by ultrasound and with just a single needle stick, it uses a patented tissue fusion technology to create the fistula endovascularly. Most patients leave with just a small adhesive bandage. Learn more at medtronic.com backslash ellipsis. Risks may include total or partial occlusion or stenosis of the anamostis, failure to achieve fistula maturation, steel syndrome, hematoma, infection, and need for vessel superficialization or other maturation assistance procedures. Federal law restricts this device to sales by or on the order of a physician. Find important safety information at mctronic.com backslash ellipsis. You know, we, we spoke a little bit ago about the neonatal and the pediatric population. And we have the, the PD Neosig at Ava, and it's all the specialists that work in those that specialty. And these guys are absolutely phenomenal. And they're laser focused on vessel health and preservation for their little, little ones, which Absolutely. is, they have Absolutely. to, and they've learned over time that, I mean, they go to bat for their babies. It's like, no intensivists. We got to think outside the box on this baby. We la 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 la. So it's phenomenal to hear them talk the passion they have. I mean, we're pretty passionate about what we do, but Absolutely. you add an infant to that mix. And I think. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, it's, uh, you know, we say in every specialty, the right line for the right patient. I mean, right. Um, and, uh, and sometimes it's challenging. It's complicated. You and I have talked about this many times. Well, do we, well, do we, how do we know if the patient, you know, is going to progress to, uh, you know, chronic kidney disease, or, you know, how do we know whether it's going to, you know, continue to progress? And the answer is that none of us have a crystal ball. That's why you get the experts in. And if you're not sure, Err on the side of caution, and you know if it's, if you you know if it's a if it's a two four six week course of antibiotics, I I I, I, I small bore tunnel central catheters are you know are an option. There are other options for those patients, and you know it it, it all depends on it, everything's everything's a balancing act, risks and benefits. Precisely, precisely. But I I tend I could argue easily argue all day that if I drop one in the IJ tunnel it to the chest, that infection risk is no greater than going to the I arm. I don't disagree whatsoever. I agree. I agree with that hundred percent. You know, I, I, I'm careful to make that statement for the simple fact that I know that there's some literature out there that argues the contrary, but I, I also don't know the technique that's being used to do it. I also, you know, do, and, and, and as you do, I also do a very, 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 very low IJ approach. Right. My ultrasound, my ultrasound is always par- parallel to the clavicle. I'm coming in sideways. You know, the, you, I'm not sticking to a super high stick in the neck where, you know, patients are, it, it, it's again, it's, it all depends on tech. A lot of it's so much technique. There's right. a reason we talked about this last time. There's a reason why some clavians 
have a lower incidence of infection than IJs. And the reason for it is it's, not, it's nothing special about the subclavian vein. It's where it's sitting on the patient's body anatomically, you know, in, in, in my unhumble opinion in this perspective. So- <laughs> Mine too, I, I agree. Most, most people that do IJs stick up here because they don't want to hit the lung. So, you know, good luck getting a, uh, you know, a, a, an occlusive dressing on that. I think you and I covered that at one point. But so if you, if you could easily, with proper technique, put an IJ in and make it look just like a subclavian line, but you're using the internal jugular vein, it's all about where you're positioning your ultrasound and your needle. It, it, and it's, that, that's all it's about. Um, and talk about patient comfort. Good Lord. I've got pictures upon pictures upon pictures <laughs> that, you that show it. It's, and, and, you know, you know, the, the, the dressing strap to the ear and the face and, you know, you know, unfortunately, and, and, then I, and I feel bad for my nursing colleagues because nurses get, you know, ridiculed for high infection rates and, you know, essential line related infections because, uh, of poor dressing. Well, how is a nurse supposed to dress, purposely dress a line that was put up in the patient's face? Uh, or sutured to the mandible, for God's exactly, sake. That's exactly oh. right. So when does Crazy. the when do the clinicians that actually are placing these lines, whether it's residents, fellows, or experienced operators, because they don't know any better because they weren't taught to do a lower approach because right. they're not confident with their ultrasound skills, which is a whole other problem. But uh, when, are, <laughs> when, when are they, when are they responsible for what's, uh, you know, for, for, for that? So it's, yeah, that old study, uh, it's an older study that talks about the risk of IJ infection versus subclavian. I would really like to see that redone with a, a team that places them low in the neck, dresses them absolutely. on the chest. Absolutely, absolutely. Versus chisel down the bone to the etchlateral nipple to put in an ugly subclavian. Without a doubt. And I guarantee you, if you do that, um, the, the, the data will be identical. I mean, obviously, you know, it's, it only makes sense. There's nothing special about this. The subclavian vein doesn't have some special silver properties <laughs> that keep it from getting infected. It's all about location. It's all about how it sits. It's all about dressing. It's all about being able to get a, an occlusive dressing, but it's, you know. Right. Uh, it has that, a that, CHG exudate. That's what the subclavian has. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, it's, it's a, that's the danger of looking at data, you know, in, in, on an island without, without stopping and thinking correlation is not causation so right 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 well mike this is so much fun i think i could sit and talk to you all day long about this and i appreciate that i love it i love it so do you have any other specific questions about you know as it relates to you know it's funny because i called you out of the blue all right when i have a a message i want to put out about renal disease or you're sorry you're the stick the stucky on this one so to speak so tell me about ellipsis so ellipsis is actually the, one of the things one of the, the one of the biggest reasons why it's so as we switch gears away from you know um specifically away from picks midlines let's look at any we're talking about anacubital issues and you know anacubital um you know uh, ivs the way ellipsis is a percutaneous one of two commercially available fda approved percutaneous fistula creation platforms. One is by Medtronic, the other one is by BD. The BD platform is called Wavelink. The one by Medtronic is Ellipsis. And Ellipsis basically is a, and I'm gonna use some fancy terms and then I'll explain it. It's a percutaneous version or a percutaneous uh, equivalent to a surgical Graz fistula. So what is that? Surgical Graz fistula is something that's not often done in the United States. It's basically a communication between a small perforating vein in the forearm, which basically is then hooked to the either the radial artery or the brachial artery. 
So the way um, ellipsis is done, and I can do a whole podcast on ellipsis showing cool anatomy slides and all that stuff if you're interested to show and really dial in why anacubital sticks are terrible for, uh, for percutaneous access. So percutaneous fistulas are becoming more and more popular. Uh, it's a minimally invasive way to give a patient a surgical fistula or a, or, or a long-term hemodialysis access without surgery. Um, not everybody's a candidate, but those that are candidates can end up having a basically a fistula creation in, in, in under 20 minutes with no surgery, no general anesthesia and whatnot. And the platform that we utilize called Ellipsis is that we actually use the median cubital vein. So, and, and it'd actually be really funny, fun, Judy, as a side note, to really go do a deep dive in the anatomy because what ellipsis and what percutaneous fistulas have done is actually, we actually started recreating or re-looking at the anatomy in the forearm and the crusty elbow from what we conventionally know because it makes a difference now that you start looking at the outflow from a from from, from, a, from an axis that's created that perforated vein, and also and we, we connect more about that. But basically, there's a, if you look at your median cubital in traditional anatomy, your uh, basically in normal patients it can be broken down into median cephalic and the median basilic. If you ever notice, there's two veins in the forearm in most people. The median cubital traditionally heads towards that basilic. But if you ever notice that a lot of people have that same vein that runs up towards the cephalic, what we do is, and, and, and they both generally feed from that vein that comes down here, it's, it's the median vein. Some people actually call that the cephalic vein of the forearm, but it's actually not the cephalic vein of the forearm. Um, and some people, they communicate, but the cephalic vein of the forearm actually runs behind the arm. But you have that nice median vein that, and then usually splits in conventional anatomy. One goes towards the cephalic, one goes towards the basilic. Ellipsis does is we use one of those cubital veins and actually it then ties, those two cubital veins come together and they tie, they, they, they tie into this light, little perforator vein, which is really dives down. We have perforator veins all over the body and it drops down and in about 90% of patients, uh, roughly, give or take, that perforator vein runs right next to that proximal radial artery, like within, within less than a millimeter or a millimeter and a half. Not 90% of people will qualify for this because the size criteria, but if your sizes are right, if the, as that perforated vein drops down towards the, that proximal radial artery, what we do is we cannulate that median cephalic or the median basilic vein, most commonly the median cephalic vein. We, under ultrasound guidance, we follow that needle down, down through that perforator vein until it comes right next to that proximal radial artery. And then we pop that needle right into that proximal radial artery and then feed a wire down. So now you've gone through the vein into the artery. Our ellipsis catheter will then hook uh, that artery and the vein, it'll clamp down and using heat and pressure, you're actually, we actually weld the artery and vein together. And as basically the rate limiting step is how good under ultrasound you are. So, you know, our, our fastest operators are less than 10 minutes to create the fistulas. And now you've got a, uh, and the way we teach our program is actually it's a two-stage procedure where the first stage you do your creation, somewhere between, you know, four to six weeks later, we have that patient come back as a for a secondary visit. So now you've got a dual outflow fistula, which, so instead of your anastomosis being hooked to the brachial artery or down the radial artery, you're actually using the middle part of the proximal radial artery. We actually go to the forearm and when we go to the forearm, we're able to use that radial artery so we get a lower flow fistula. 
Uh, you've got a multi-outflow fish slip because you've got multiple feeding vessels. So you've got multiple cannulation, potential cannulation options. And because you don't have that high pressure flow going through that fish slip, like we, we would with a brachial artery fish slip, you don't see the aneurysm formation as often. You don't see the cephalic, vein, the cephalic arch stenosis as often. You don't see steel as often. You don't see a lot of the issues that we would traditionally see with conventional surgical fistula. So back to, as it relates to AVA and, and, you know, and, and vascular access, the reason why that's important, if you think about it, we're using that perforator vein carrying blood flow from that proximal radial artery, you get a little flow in the brachial artery, the brachial veins, but most of your flow is gonna go through your cephalic and your basilic vein, assuming they're both present. If you put an antecubital IV in those patients, those patients, and I've seen this over and over again, I have slides where I would screen patients for percutaneous fistulas and I'd have to exclude them just because they got thrombus across the elbow because of IVs that were, that were put in. There's nothing more maddening than that because that patient would have been a great candidate for a percutaneous fistula or even potentially a semino fistula. So you've destroyed not only a distal radial artery fistula option, now you've destroyed an option for them to have a minimally invasive uh, fistula either with either platform you choose, you know, whether it's wavelength or ellipsis, they work differently. Um, but obviously I'm a, you know, I work for Medtronic and, you know, we're focused on sure. ellipsis. Essentially, if you, if you jail off one of your two outflows, yeah, you could potentially still get a basilic vein dominant fistula, but always the, the option really ideally is to get that cephalic vein to mature. So the patient doesn't need a transposition or a secondary surgery. And when you go ahead and you put an IV in that patient's arm across that elbow, first of all, we know they almost always lead to thrombosis. They almost always lead to failure, but it's a quick, easy way to do it. But, but you just, you, you do it in a patient that's renally challenged. Uh, you're, you're destroying several options for that patient and you're really hurting them bad. What about the repetitive phlebotomy folks? It's a great question. Same, same thing. That's why I'm a big advocate and something, and I, and something that's been really hard to be really hard held to climb is getting those patients with compromised renal status to wear one of those bracelets that say no blood pressure IV sticks or teaching the patients to certainly at least in the non-dominant arm, obviously you need to have something, but teaching the patients um, the anatomy and understanding that, you know, having them be their own advocate, but it would be, it would be wonderful in the primary care doctor's office and the nephrologist's office, getting those patients to the point where they have those bracelets on. Unfortunately, 80% of patients start dialysis with a catheter. That pre-screening here in the States is not great. And, you know, the opportunity is low, but a lot of times those opportunities happen in the hospital, uh, in the ER, the second patient gets it. How many times do you go to the ER and you don't get blood work done? You know, you see a compromised real status, have a box of those, you know, bracelets and just give it to the patient. Let them put it on their non-dominant arm because let's think about how many veins and arms you would save if you did that. Even if you look at, I'm not picking on our phlebotomy friends because they do a great job, but their go-to, if they, if they see an AC, that's their go-to. They don't, they're not looking further. And sadly that happens with a lot of clinicians as well with IVs. We're trying to trend, turn that trend. But with phlebotomy, that's just one step past getting the IVs out of the AC. Yep, you're, you're right. It's, it's, it's just such an uphill battle and there's so many layers to it. Uh, but I think key, obviously I'm in an education role. Um, I convert, you know, I, I, my full I'm a full-time medical educator now, part-time clinician now. But my role is because I'm so passionate about vessel preservation, especially in the ESRD population, um, you know, 
I've dedicated my life to being able to, to uh, push the initiative and making sure that these patients at least get some, somewhat of a shot because they deserve it. I want to join you on that. Anything that I, we can do at Ava to, I want to speak to those patients. I think we're working as hard as we can with the clinicians and I love the effort you're in, but I want to get to the patients. What I, what I would love to do is, um, and I mentioned this on our last podcast um, where the audio quality was pretty bad. So you probably couldn't hear me say it. Uh, <laughs> Nick Instant down in, in, in the UK, uh, he's a surgeon, a vascular access surgeon. They actually have what's called a Save the Vein initiative where they actually are, where they go around and educate, you know, physicians and patients and, you know, they teach on vessel preservation, help all the physicians and patients. And uh, I would love, and, 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 you know, within the community that I'm part of, I'm part of VASA, uh, Vascular Access, Access, Access Society of America. It would be an amazing initiative if, if Ava and VASA can kind of join together, link up and, and really take that to the next level here in the States and kind of emulate what they've, what our UK colleagues have done and, and really have, um, you know, just elevate that initiative here in the States. Because I think between both groups joined together, I think a lot of good stuff can be done. Get VASA to the table and we can go play. That'll be great. Awesome. There awesome. we go. We just we just put the gauntlet down on a podcast. <laughs> I like it. I like it. <laughs> I love it. Mike, this has been so much fun. I know awesome. we're gonna have you back. You're talking exactly what I want to hear and what I preach. So it makes me feel like I'm smarter. Be in touch, Judy. Okay. Thanks, Mike. Take care. You can see the entire Ava calendar on the Ava website at www.avainfo.org which is also where you can join Ava or donate to the Ava Foundation. Don't miss Facebook Fridays, where we are live at noon Eastern time each week. Toss us a question or give us a like. We're on all the social media platforms. You can follow the Association for Vascular Access on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Pinterest. Make sure you're subscribed to the I Save That podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Pandora, or Google Play Music. Now here comes the legal stuff. The topics discussed on the I Save That podcast are purely for informational purposes. You should personally seek the guidance of clinicians before making any decision that affects your health or the health of your patients. Listeners of this podcast are advised to do their own due diligence when it comes to making vascular access decisions. Our goal is to inform and entertain the healthcare landscape while giving you a starting point for your discussions with your own clinicians and professional advisors. By listening to this podcast, you agree that the host, our guests, our sponsors, and the Association for Vascular Access are not responsible for the success or failure of your health, your career, or any decision you make related to any information we've presented. The I Save That podcast contains segments of copyrighted music that was not specifically authorized to be used, but is protected by federal law and the fair use doctrine as cited in section 107 of the U.S. Copyright Act. If you have any specific concerns about this broadcast or our position on fair use defense, please contact us at podcast at avainfo.org. No part of this broadcast shall be reproduced, transmitted, or sold in whole, or in part, or in any form, without the prior written consent of the Association for Vascular Access.